thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing our series, the book of Daniel, and I've entitled our message today, Standing Tall in a Bow-Down World. The story is told of, a, of an African tribe that learned an easy way to capture ducks in a river. Catching their agile and wary dinner would be a feat indeed, so they formulated a pretty unique plan. The tribesmen learned to go upstream. They would place a pumpkin in the river, and they would let it slowly float down into the flock of ducks. At first, the cautious fowl would quack and fly away. After all, it wasn't ordinary for pumpkins to float down rivers. But the persistent tribesmen would subsequently float another pumpkin into the regathered ducks. Again, they would scatter only to return after the strange sphere had passed. Again, the hungry hunters would float another pumpkin. This time, the ducks would remain. They'd kind of keep a cautious eye on the pumpkin, and with each successive passing, the ducks became more comfortable till they finally accepted that pumpkins going down rivers are a normal part of life. When the natives saw that the pumpkins no longer bothered the ducks, they hollowed out pumpkins, they put them over their heads, and they walked into the river. Meandering into the midst of the tolerant ducks, they pulled them down one at a time and killed them. That sounds so fun to me as a hunter. Sadly, for our purposes today, we are the ducks. We paddle around in our daily lives. Some crazy worldview floats by us that hasn't existed since the dawn of creation or one that's been sort of refurbished. And we see the threat. We know it doesn't belong as people of faith. And we take flight. And we get away from it. And then it keeps kind of floating by. Keeps floating by. It becomes part of our environment. Other ducks don't seem to be too bothered by it. Even churched ducks aren't bothered anymore. And before we know it, we find our faith underwater. The New Testament calls this worldliness. It's typically sort of the arrangement of this world in its opposition to God. That's typically what the word cosmos means in the New Testament. Often, author David Wells asks about the definition. He says, what is worldliness? It is the system of values in any given age which has as its center our fallen human perspective which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. Christian author and speaker Sky Jathani wrote about his kindergarten age daughter's homework assignment. See how much sort of the world infiltrates a little five-year-old. Help your children identify as many logos as possible. Now, there's nothing wrong with logos. Jathani said that without hesitating, she identified Pizza Hut, as she should. Pizza Hut, Target, Lego. At home, she collected the logos of Disney, Jell-O, Goldfish Crackers. Later, while drinking a glass of water, she proudly shouted, I don't get this one, Ikea. She spotted, 
she spotted the tiny logo imprinted on the bottom of a glass. Jathani reflected, should it scare me that my five-year-old had memorized more corporate brands than Bible verses or names of relatives? Also scary was the fact that no one taught her to identify logos. We didn't have corporate logo flashcard drills at home. Zoe internalized these logos simply by living for five years in a brand-saturated culture. This sort of brand marketing has been so effective that the average 10-year-old has already memorized 300 to 400 brands. When these children become adolescents, each with an average of $100 of disposable cash to spend every week, they will select from these brands to construct their identities. Identities they can eat, drink, smoke, drive, play, ride, and wear. The spiritual value of shopping is not lost on marketers. Douglas Atkins, author of The Culting of Brands, when customers become true believers, states plainly that brands are the new religion. Now, I'm not worried about that statement, but nonetheless, it's no wonder we are all sort of programmed to fit in. How much we identify with the world around us, how much that becomes our environment. We're like those sitting ducks. We all want to be accepted. We all want to fit in. We all want to be assimilated into the culture and the culture assimilated to us so that when, when we're around other people, uh, we just, we just, there's no discomfort. But our faith says that we're not supposed to do that at any price. That sometimes, many times, we need to stand tall in a bow-down world. I want to read a story about that from Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, it should be located right in front of you. There's one there. It should be on page 630. Page 630, this is a book of Daniel. Daniel was a prophet in the Old Testament. He was a prophet that lived during a time where when he was young, he lived in Israel, and then he had been deported to a foreign power, Babylon, Babylonia, that had overtaken Israel in about 600 B.C. So he's in Babylon. He writes this story. Daniel chapter 3, page 630. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits. So that's 90 feet, plus or minus. And it's with six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the king that Nebuchadnezzar, or the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music. See, the Scots were even there. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. These are motivated worshipers. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the people's nations and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. 
they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these men were brought before the king. Our greatest temptation is to bow down to fit in. This is a fascinating story. What's interesting, and I think this is actually quite relevant, Babylonians did not, were not monotheists. They didn't believe in one God. So they did not require emperor worship. He's not having people bow down to worship him like the Romans would have. And they did not require you to bow down to one God. They were free to continue to worship the God of Israel. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have kept worshiping the true God and just sort of bow down to Nebo, knowing in their hearts we really don't mean this. It's not a big deal. We're just trying to fit in. We just don't want to, you know, get heated up a little bit here. They could have absolutely continued to worship their God and also worship the God of Nebuchadnezzar or at least feigned to worship him and they would have been fine. They were not being asked to forsake their own God at all. That would not have been Babylonian culture. Unfortunately for them and for us, God doesn't share loyalties. God is jealous. Not jealous like when you're a 16-year-old boy and you think you've got a girlfriend and she's talking to another dude and you're kind of insecure about it. God's not jealous like that. God is God alone. And he's worthy of our loyalty and our worship. He's our creator. And we are only found, we are only ourselves when we come to a point where we recognize who he actually is and come back to a point where we, we acknowledge that and worship him. That's how he's jealous. He died for us. The Bible actually says he purchased us with his blood on the cross. So following God is not like playing the field in the dating world. He is the only God worthy of worship. And technically, he's the only God. So they didn't have a choice. They couldn't just bow down to Nebo, in this case, probably the God this was representing, and worship him and keep worshiping Jehovah, the Old Testament word for God, they couldn't bow down to fit in. Nebuchadnezzar had built a statue, 60 cubits. Now, I believe a cubit is typically measured from the tip of your middle finger to the end of your elbow. Uh, that's sort of an ancient measurement, 18 inches plus or minus, so 90 feet tall. It was overlaid with gold. Now, interestingly, if you want to get in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar for just a moment, it's a dangerous place to be, but let's just get there for a moment. He would probably claim that this idol was God's idea in some sick, twisted way. Not his God, but Daniel's God's idea. Say, how on earth could he have figured that one? Well, in the last chapter, remember Daniel's dream. Daniel interpreted just a little earlier in Nebuchadnezzar's history, we don't know exactly how, much, uh, how early, but Daniel interpreted a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. 
It was a revelation, it was what we talked about last week, it was a revelation, a revealing of the next 600 years of world history. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, he demands that the people who can interpret dreams not just tell him the interpretation, but tell him the dream so he knows it's a miracle. And at first, of course, nobody could do it, and he's ready to sort of, he decided to execute all of the, the dream interpreters until Daniel said, give me some time to pray about this, and I will give you not just the interpretation of your dream, but the dream itself. God miraculously revealed this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And in that dream, the God of heaven, the sovereign God of heaven who runs the world and still accommodates free will and evil, not sure how he pulls that off, runs the world, in that dream, he gave Nebuchadnezzar a vision, a picture of the next 600 years of world history. And so typically scholars interpret it this way. There were four kingdoms before Jesus would come, and those kingdoms were Babylonia, which is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which was represented by a head of gold. Keep that in mind, the head of gold. Then Medo-Persia, the chest and arms of silver. Greece, Macedonia, the thighs, bellies of bronze. Rome, legs and feet of iron mixed with clay. So Nebuchadnezzar has heard a dream from the true God, the God of heaven, and God, Daniel's God, the interpreter of dreams, has called him the head of gold. So he just runs with it a little bit. Instead of turning his loyalty to the God who had miraculously forecasted the future for him, he built a statue of gold. He's the head of gold. But he built the statue to Nebo, Babylonian god. He used the gold idea. Now, it wouldn't have been solid gold. It would have been overlaid with gold. He made the major government officials then from the whole realm, this newly conquered territory, come to swear loyalty to the wrong god. Nebo hadn't elevated him in his realm. The god of heaven had sovereignly done that. But Nebuchadnezzar builds this idol, 90 feet tall. An international convention is called, the worship convention. The band starts to play. It's an interesting collection of instruments. It's amazing how much they felt need to continue to repeat them in this chapter, actually. The band starts to play. The crowd falls like well-dressed dominoes. And everyone in the crowd bows down to Nebo, the Babylonian god, except three Jewish boys, young men. Way in the back, king didn't even know about it, huge crowd. Maybe they're against the back wall, who knows, but the Chaldeans narked on them, and now their lives are at risk. And the question is, would you have been one of them, standing tall in a bow-down world? Are you one of them? See, it's, it's hard to stay standing when everyone else, everyone is bowing down. In a classroom, it's really hard to be the Christian at university in a philosophy or a history of civilization class, especially if you're willing to open your mouth and say something. 
It's really hard to be that way in a friend group. It's really hard that we, to be that way sometimes in a Christian friend group in light of what Christians believe these days. It's hard to be that way in a chat room online, which I would never recommend being in a chat room online, but should you decide to foray into that. It's hard to stand up in an increasingly secular world and just simply say, I believe this. I believe it. And I'm going to stake my future on this. It doesn't really matter what happens to be it. I just believe this. It's hard. The younger you are, I own, the more sorry I feel for you that you are growing up in a world that is so hostile to faith. When I was a boy, so 1860s, right after the Civil War, when I was a boy back in the States, in the North, so we won, but nonetheless, when I was a boy, it was unusual, and those of you who are older who are sporting a little gray hair, or maybe my look if you're brave, when I was a boy, it was very unusual for, for government systems, think the federal government, think the school systems, very unusual for them to in any way try to negatively impact what your children believed and to violate the wishes of parents. It was almost unheard of we don't live in that world anymore. Public institutions do not support, do not in any way lend credibility to people of faith. They're hostile. But that's the gig. That's what you signed up for. God doesn't share his children. He doesn't share their loyalties. Our greatest temptation is to bow down to fit in. Second, our source of courage is a history of heroes and situations where God comes through for those who obey him. Now, this is actually not taught in Daniel chapter 3. I want to be very honest about that. If you're looking for these verses and for the authorial intent to make this point, you're not going to find them. So if you're thinking, Paul, where's that in there? You just sort of, you know, where are you getting this? You're right. It's not in the text. It's an argument from silence. But what's interesting is every commentator you read about this is asking this question. It's the question every scholar, every student, every casual reader has once they read Daniel chapter 3. What is that question? Where's Daniel? Daniel is not in this story. And everyone wants to know. This is a book written by him, and he doesn't exist in this chapter. He's their leader, he's their spokesperson, as Reggie Jackson was said to be in 1976. He's the straw that stirs the drink. Anyone not know who Reggie, okay, home run, never mind, never mind. Baseball. He's the dream reader. He's the dream weaver before Gary Wright sung about it. He's the guy who could interpret miraculously what God was doing. He's the name on the book. It's not mentioned at all. He doesn't exist in this story. It's very interesting. Why? And so commentators go through all kinds of speculation about what's going on. Where's Daniel? We're going to find him later in a lion's den, but he's not here. He's either absent on other government duties. This is the world empire at this time. Or he's closeted away working on legislation or sort of military plans with the cabinet and didn't have to show up for this. Some say he's sick because later on in the book it mentions some illness he dealt with. Some say he wasn't required to attend due to his status. He might have been like the vice regent, sort of like, like a, a vice premier, like, like number two in command. So his loyalty is assumed because he had been promoted based on the last chapter. 
He may have been sitting right next to Nebuchadnezzar during this whole thing, but of course the king wouldn't have stood and bowed down. The king was there watching everyone else do it. Some say Daniel was probably there right by his side. Also, loyalty assumed, not assuming he had to stand up and bow down. Some say he wasn't required to be there based on the terms used of government officials. He might have had a higher position. The reality is, since I just gave you seven different options, we don't know. We have no idea. But he's not here. But I would suggest that Daniel's courage and Daniel's obedience in chapter one, where he's clearly the leader of the band. I mean, he's, he's the leader of the South Beach Diet Boys. He's, he's had such an impression on them. They saw the miracles that had already taken place in chapter two. They saw how God protected them in chapter one. They knew the history of God's intervention in, in the history of their nation countless times. And now it, it looks like, and this was interesting for these Jewish boys, because this is where the great risk was. It looks like you can take God on the road and he's still God. And that would have been the great theological question for Israelites in that culture. Because gods were viewed as very localized. If you think the Old Testament, how they would worship the Baal gods, these pagan gods. There would be a Baal god for every different vicinity. They were viewed as localized. That was something that was different about the God of heaven. He's the God who's sovereign over all things. But these Jewish boys have been taken from Israel, deported to basically modern-day Iraq, and the question they would naturally have would be, does God still operate here? Can we count on his promises? Is he still God in any way, or are we on our own and we should just fit in to stay alive? Well, based on the first couple of chapters, these young men had a growing conviction that God goes on the road. And it doesn't matter what it looks like in the world around us, God travels. His promises are secure. His nature is, is not imperiled by the circumstances. They had caught that courage. Courage is caught. And they were taught by the best. History, the history of Israel, God coming through, and their leader, Daniel. We have courage because of these stories. That's why we're talking about them today. Our source of courage is a history of heroes and situations where God comes through. Daniel's not mentioned, but these boys now stand anyway. Back to the text. Our ultimate conviction is no divided loyalties, no matter the cost. So they had seen a history of God's deliverance, nationally and even recently in their individual lives, but they'd also seen a God sit by as their nation was defeated in war. I mean, the last 120 years had not been very good for them and for their nation. The northern 10 tribes had been defeated by Assyria. Now the southern two tribes have been defeated and deported in some cases by Babylonia. Assyria's been conquered by Babylon as well. Now a lot of the people have been deported. That's why they are over in Babylon. And yet they have this cautious optimism as they've seen God come through even in this foreign land. And so after they're told, after they're pulled before the king, here's what the text says in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, now they're standing before the king, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Gives him a second chance. What a nice guy. Now if you're ready, 
At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. We're going to start the band again for you on three, one, two. And they did. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Well, that's a good question. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. I love this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. A little sassy. We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I love this. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's courage. I love, they have a full perspective. I love the response. Here it is. Golden boy, we don't answer to you. Respectfully. Our God can save us, number two. Number three, he might not, and it doesn't matter. We don't answer to you. We serve you, but we don't answer to you. Our God can save us, but we're not even counting on that. Even if we die, we won't bow down. They knew the Shema. Every Jewish boy knew it. Every Jewish girl knew it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love him with all your heart, soul, with all your strength. They knew we serve one God. Can't compromise that. Jesus' words were just as demanding. If you want to be my disciple, what? You need to be able to carry your cross. It was a, a metaphor for you're going to be crucified as well. If you want to join my movement, you have signed up to die. This absolute monotheism, that there is one God, monotheism, one God. This absolute monotheism has made Jews and Christians offensive in the world in the ancient world and in the modern world. See, in the Old Testament and in, in the time of Rome and the New Testament, many great nations, and by that I mean powerful, many great nations and cultures simply conquered new territory and they would let the conquered territories and peoples keep their gods and adopt the new ones as well. In fact, Rome was really, really good at this kind of assimilation. Uh, they, they would conquer new territories, and you might adopt some Roman gods and some Greek gods before them and keep your own gods. You sort of had this big polytheistic mess. But it's fine, because nobody was telling you not to worship. And then they conquered Israel, and Israel's like, yeah, we don't do that. We, we, don't, do the, we don't do that many God thing. We, we do the one God thing. And they're willing to die for it. Babylon did not expect these boys to drop their God. They just wanted them to add a little Nebo to their theology. Can't do it. Can't do it, Nebuchadnezzar. We love you. You're a good guy. You're God's golden boy. But we answer to a higher God. We won't bow. And even if it costs us our lives, it doesn't matter. 
implicit to your faith, if you're a Jesus follower, or if you're thinking about it, implicit to your journey will be this. You're gonna have this annoying, intolerant position of the views of the world around you because you're gonna believe there's one God, there's one way to God, there is one source of truth about God, and people have been dying for this for thousands of years, and that is not going to change. We're not stubborn. We just believe the God of creation has revealed himself in history, has performed countless miracles to authenticate that he is the God of history. They've been perfectly preserved. They've been sovereignly preserved in a written record of his activity. He then entered humanity as the Son of God. He died and rose again to procure our forgiveness and eternal life. And the historical ancient documents about that are better preserved than most things in ancient libraries. And that God claimed to be the only way. John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No divided loyalties, no matter the cost. We can't bow down. Our DNA says we can't. In this case, thankfully, there's a happy ending to this story. God came through, and he came through in this lifetime. That's what I love, when God comes through in this lifetime. We're all a little disappointed when we have to say, oh yeah, God's gonna make it right, you know, someday I'll be dead, you know, but God's gonna make it right in the eternity, and that's like, yeah, great. Will it even matter to me in heaven? I'm gonna say, yes, spike the ball, God made things right. I mean, it is good that he will, but we really love it when it happens in this lifetime. God came through for them in this lifetime. This furnace threat was undoubtedly a smelting furnace that was used to melt the gold that overlaid this statue. That's what most people would believe. Now, you say, otherwise, it's like, why is there a furnace out in the middle of the plain of Dura? Well, they had used it in the construction project. So they still got the construction equipment there. You know, the furnace is, is heated up, and, and Nebuchadnezzar's pretty hot about these young men's attitudes. And they were respectful, but they said, we have to do what we have to do. He told them to heat the furnace to seven times its normal heat. The three were bound, and in fact, it's funny, it says they put their coats on, they put their hats on. I'm not sure what was going on in Nebuchadnezzar's head, but evidently, they had them like dress up a lot for this. They added their clothes to them, gave them more clothes. They're bound, and they were executed. They were rolled into a fiery furnace, and it was so hot that the people putting them in there actually died. Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded. After they're rolled into this fiery furnace, and he stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, wasn't there three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They said to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four loosed, they're not bound anymore, and walking around in the middle of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire and there would have been bodies there from those who had gotten so close to throw the Jews in there. And he called in the furnace and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst 
of the fire. Remember that this part of the book of Daniel is recorded in Aramaic, not Hebrew. It's an interesting little fact that you really, you don't hear it mentioned much, but it's important. The largest part of the Bible in Aramaic anywhere, almost all the Old Testament's Hebrew, New Testament we have in Greek. This is Aramaic. It's the language of the empire. A decree was made at that point that nobody could oppose or speak against the God of Israel from that day forward. So this isn't written in Hebrew scriptures. This is written in Aramaic for the empire of Babylon or Babylonia. You cannot speak against the God of Israel or you will be executed. It's quite a day for God. It was made possible because three young men wouldn't bow down. And God came through. Just a couple applications. All gods are not created equal. There's a reason to stand tall. Polytheism, a belief in many gods, I mean, that's a belief system. It's not truth. Pluralism, which of course is a part of our world, you know, all these different competing philosophies and systems of thought, and, and they can completely conflict with the, uh, one another, and they can all be true at the same time. I do not know how reason and logic are surviving in the 21st century. Actually, they're not. That's the problem. How can you have opposing worldviews, and yet they're all true, and we can't critique them internally? What is wrong with our brains? I, I want to shake this world and say, think. When all four major world religions are in opposition to each other as far as sources of truth and ways of salvation, how can they all be true? Let's just, how can they all be true? And yet, it is the prevailing thinking in our world among very smart people. Pluralism is a philosophy. It's not the truth. Gods are not created equal. J.R. Vassar writes about ministering in Myanmar, or formerly Burma, and coming upon a broken Buddha. Not to pick on Buddha, but it's a good illustration. One day we were prayer walking through a large Buddhist temple when I witnessed something heartbreaking. A large number of people, very poor and desperate, were bowing down to a large golden Buddha. They were stuffing what seemed to be the last of their money into the treasury box and kneeling in prayer, hoping to secure a blessing from the Buddha. On the other side of the large golden idol, scaffolding had been built. The Buddha had begun to deteriorate, and a group of workers was diligently repairing the broken Buddha. I took in the scene. Broken people bowing down to a broken Buddha, asking the broken Buddha that needs scaffolding and repairs to fix their broken lives. Think about that. They're praying to a God that's being repaired by construction teams. The insanity and despair of it all hit me. We're no different from them. We're broken people looking to other broken people to fix our broken lives. We are glory-deficient people looking to other glory-deficient people to supply us with glory, looking to other people to provide for us what they lack themselves is a fool's errand. It's futile to look to other glory-hungry people. He's making a different point here. My point is, the God of the Bible needs no repairs. 
I don't like everything about the God of the Bible. That might sound like sacrilege to you. I'm not happy about everything that's in this book. But I'm not God, and I know that. So it doesn't matter. If Jesus is risen from the dead, and I believe he is, I accept everything here. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the great, the glorious, and the majestic. The God of the Bible needs no repairs. He created everything. He governs all of it. He miraculously intervened through all of history. He came into our humanity. He proved his divinity. That's why we stand tall. There's one true God, and there is one true source of truth and reality. That's our DNA. Second, the normal experience for a Jesus follower is to be the minority tempted to bow down. Now, I mentioned earlier my childhood in the late 1800s and how the, you, know, you would have a world in which what we believe would never sort of be impeded, you know, pressed, persecuted, whatever, undermined by the school system or the government. Uh, those days are over. They probably ended in, I don't know, the 1980s, 1990s, and now actually there's significant hostility in the Western world towards faith. So the last 50 years, for those of you who have a little more gray hair than I do, and it would be gray if you could see it, the reality is you have seen a radical shift in Western civilization. If you're, if you're 30 and under, you, you don't know what it was like before you were, it's just, it's a different world for you. But we didn't grow up in that world. You're growing up in that different world. We grew up in a different world where the school systems would not be hostile to Christianity, where the government would not be hostile to Christianity. I mean, it wouldn't be supporting it, but it wouldn't be hostile. Now, in the Old Testament, faith is protected because the Old Testament was a theocracy. It was all about Israel, and, and there, there, was, there was no separation between sort of their state, if you will, and, and their faith because, you know, it was like a nation on a piece of land that God was protecting. That's the Old Testament. But the New Testament vision for the church is very different. Jesus said, we're not going to be a nation. We're going to be a people, an ecclesia, a called-out group of people from all nations. And what he promised us is, you're not going to be protected like Old Testament Israel, nationally, where sort of God's got your back. You're going to be dispersed through the nations, and if you follow me, there's a very good chance if you're part of the church, you're going to be martyred. Hence his point, carry your cross. Faith is dangerous since Jesus for people who are people of faith. That's the norm. The normal experience for a Jesus follower is to be in the minority tempted to bow down. And finally, be careful about the lesser gods that vie for our attention. Now, I'm going to throw a little pet peeve at you here, okay? I don't love the way Christians and Christian authors throw the word idolatry around. I, I don't. I'm, I'm kind of a little bothered by, you know, if you're going to, you know, hot, the puck drops at 6 o'clock tonight, you know, and a lot of you are going to be having a second worship experience then, and I'm fine with that. You know, if you're a huge fan, you know, sports fan and that just, you know, you're wearing a jersey today, God bless you. But there are Christians out there who would say, oh, you sports fans, that's just idolatry. You know, or if you love the NFL, which would be my idol. You know, that's idolatry. If you love coffee, you've got a coffee idol. If you go to the gym too much and you look in the mirror, you're worshiping your body. You know, it's like, shut up. 
Just shut up. Stop it. Because what you're doing when you use the word idol that way is you're minimizing how important it is to follow the true God and what real idolatry is. Stop it. Just stop it. Resist the temptation to try to write a bestseller. Stop it. On the other hand, Jesus used it once of money and gave it a capital M, said that it's impossible to serve God and mammon. But that's the only place I'm aware of, FYI, where Jesus or an apostle used something other than the worship of a God that way. So we shouldn't like just do it haphazardly. Having said that, I think we'd all agree there are things in our lives that can be way out of whack as far as priorities. I wouldn't call them idols, but I would call them things that take us away from our first priority, which is Jesus. So I'm going to read an illustration, which kind of seems to uh, sort of speak against what I just said, but that's why I gave it a little background. Everyone has to live for something, but Jesus argues that if that thing is not him, it will fail you, it will enslave you. Nobody puts this better than an American writer and intellectual, David Foster Wallace. He was at the top of his profession. He was an award-winning, best-selling novelist. Then he committed suicide about 15 years ago. But before his death, he gave a famous commencement address in which he said this to the graduating class. He said, here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over, those, over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And his point was, when we really prioritize the wrong things in life, they take over. They do take over. Now, I'm not going to call that idolatry because I just said how ridiculous I think that is. But there are these little lesser gods, these priorities in our lives that keep us that keep us from really truly focusing on Jesus, that we often do bow down to a little much, and they displace the Lord of creation in our lives. So make sure that Jesus stays number one. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect, or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.